life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Because great are you. is leaving Thursday for a mission trip. <laughs> Nothing exciting or out of the ordinary this time. But let me have a word of prayer for you, okay? <laughs> Heavenly Father, I want you to lift up Riley, keep her safe, uh, be with her mother, uh, keep her nerves in control. Lord, we know that Riley's going to do a great work while she's in the Dominican Republic. Help her to help those in need and help her to grow closer to you as a result. Keep her safe, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we conclude our series on the one-hit wonders of the Bible. And by one-hit wonder, I mean the books of the Bible that consist of one and only one chapter. But that one chapter, that one-hit wonder, was so good, it was so important, it was so full of significance that even that one single solitary chapter was given a title and was included among the Bible's 66 books. So far, we looked at the one-chapter prophecy written by Obadiah. We looked at the one-chapter letter written by the Apostle Paul to Philemon. And then we looked at two one-chapter letters written by John. Today we come to the final one-hit wonder in the Bible. And it goes simply by the name of Jude, titled after the man who wrote it. Now Jude was written to a general audience, meaning it was an open letter that was meant to be circulated among and read by multiple churches. It wasn't addressing a particular church or a particular situation. It was written for wide consumption. And we don't know a lot about Jude, except that he was a respected leader in the early church. And, and like the Apostle James, he was a half-brother of Jesus. Jesus was born through a virgin birth to Mary, and Joseph raised Jesus as his own son. But there was no biological relationship between Joseph and Jesus. But the children that followed through the marriage of Joseph and Mary would have been the offspring of both Mary and Joseph. So the brothers of Jesus, we don't have any mention of any sisters in the Bible, but the brothers of Jesus were technically half-brothers. And interestingly, neither James nor Jude ever talked about being members of the family of Joseph or of Mary. Now others did, but they were so taken by the special nature of Jesus that in humility, they never presumed anything special was attached to them because of their familial relationship with Jesus. As a quick aside note, James and Jude, who grew up with Jesus, 
They became followers of Jesus and were leaders within the early Christian movement. In fact, they both died martyrs' deaths for Jesus. So, if anyone would have known that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be, it would have been his two half-brothers who grew up with him, got to see him as a little boy, maybe the mistakes that he may have made, two men who worshipped him as Lord and died for his name. If anyone would have known that he wasn't who he said he was, it would have been them. Just a little something to think about. The letter from that we have from Jude is the only writing in the Bible from him. Now, while it was written to a broad audience and for multiple churches, it was written for a very specific purpose. It was written to address those who were distorting something that is central to the message of the Christian faith. They were distorting the message of grace. See, grace really is central to the Christian faith. The word itself, grace, appears in the New Testament more times than forgiveness. It appears in the New Testament more times than prayer. The Bible teaches that it is by grace that we are saved, meaning our very eternity is resting on grace. And because it's central to the Christian faith, any distortion of grace, it's critical which is what the letter of Jude is all about. And to understand Jude, we really have to understand grace. And I mean really understand it. So what is the meaning of grace in relation to the Christian faith? And before we even look at what Jude wrote, let's ground ourselves in what he was wanting to protect. So to understand grace, we must understand five background issues. The nature of God, the law of God, the human condition, the Old Testament sacrificial system, and then Jesus himself. First, the nature of God. What needs to be understood about the nature of God is his holiness and his love. God is truly perfect and holy. Sin is is repulsive to him. He's allergic to it. His holiness demands the, either the removal of sin or the destruction of it. But God is also love, which means that much, that, that much of that understanding of God lies at the crossroads of holiness and love. The second thing to understand is the law. God's spiritual and moral law, his rights and his wrongs, his standards and his dictates. This isn't something impersonal or foreign to God, but rather it's the very expression of God's person and God's will. It's not something that he arbitrarily set out. The law is God, and God is the law. It's who he is. It's his very nature, his very character. And as a result, it is God who we either obey or disobey. When we obey, it is an act of love. And when we 
disobey. It's an attack on God's very nature. It's the equivalent of treason. The penalty is serious. The most serious penalty of all. What could be worse than going against the very nature and the very character of a living God? That's why the New Testament book of Romans has these words, for the wages of sin is death. Now we are familiar with the reality of physical death. It hit my family a little strong this week as we had to lay Amy's mother to rest yesterday. But the Bible also teaches about the reality of spiritual death, which is separation from God. Sin causes spiritual death. It breaks the relationship. It destroys the intimacy that God intended to take place between himself and us, his creation. Because at its heart, sin is rebellion against God. It's rebellion against his character. Punishment is not simply a possibility. It's an inevitability, which brings us to the issue of the human condition. All of us, every single one of us, are sinners. There's no exception. The word sin is actually a term from archery. It literally means to miss the mark. If you were to shoot an arrow towards a target and you missed, it's called a sin. doesn't matter whether you missed by an inch or by a mile. It's still a sin. With, with that image in mind, take a notice of what the Bible describes the human condition. For all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. When it comes to living the life that's the way that God intended us to live, all of us are missers of the mark. Some of us may do better than others. Some of us may only miss by an inch. But we never hit the bullseye every time. And sin isn't just about the failure to be perfect. This is about willful choices, conscious decisions that we make knowing that it is against God's leadership. It is a choice that we have made with our very soul to go against the moral law, against the will of God. So whether it's murder or malice, lust, or lying, stealing, or slandering, it's all falling short. Again, it's the equivalent of treason against God. This makes sin serious business. Again, the Bible teaches when people die, they earn what sin pays, death. And we can't change that. We can't address it. We can't fix it, no matter how hard we may try, we are totally unable to rescue ourselves from a sinful condition. Salvation by works, salvation by good deeds, by earning brownie points, it's impossible. There's nothing that we can do by ourselves. 
before God. Which brings us to the fourth background issue, the Old Testament sacrificial system. If you've ever read that or had somebody talk to you about it, maybe you've wondered what's up with all of those animal sacrifices from the Old Testament. Maybe you've wondered why we don't do them now. Well, in ancient times, the Bible teaches that God said that the payment for any wrongdoing, for any sin, could be covered through the blood of an animal and a repentant heart. Though a rebellion deserves death, God's love allowed for our sin to be addressed through the sacrifice of an animal. Now this seems strange to us today, but it's very intentional by God. He wanted people to see the severity of their sin. He wanted people to see that paying for sin that comes between us and him, it's messy, it's gruesome, and it's costly because sin is messy and gruesome and costly. That it really was a life or death issue. The sacrifice was a substitute for the sinner. It bore the sinner's guilt. In fact, that's where we get a term that we use, and you may not even know it comes from the Bible. The term is scapegoat. You've probably heard of making someone the scapegoat for something, blaming them, pinning something on them. Well, that term comes from the Bible. The annual day of atonement, when the priest made atonement for all of the sins of all of the people. The scapegoat was the goat to which the sins of the Israelites were symbolically transferred to on that day of atonement. And then that scapegoat was sacrificed. The sacrifice was going to be effective. There had to be some kind of connection, some kind of point of commonality between the victim and the sinner for whom it was being offered. But there had to be a laying on of hands constituting a confession of the guilt on the part of the sinner, a transfer of the guilt from the sinner to the animal. God also said that the animal had to be sacri- that was to be sacrificed had to be without any kind of blemish or mark. The point was that the sin or the imperfection could only be addressed by perfection. Sin cannot deal with with sin can only be dealt with by God himself because the sin was against God. It's against his law and, and only he could offer true forgiveness. But the sacrificial system was only a sign of what God was going to do. It wasn't something that would ultimately bridge that gap between us and God, which is why throughout that that time, the great prophets of God would say that there would one day there would come from God a final sacrifice, the Messiah, who would take away the sins of the world once and for all. That at that point in time in history that God chose for reasons known only to himself, God did just that. He provided a perfect, once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of all people throughout all of history. Which brings us to Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment of that sacrificial system. 
Because of him, we can now be forgiven once and for all. John the Baptist said this when he saw Jesus coming. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Do you see that fulfillment? Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice lamb. God's holiness intersecting with God's love. This is where justice met mercy. God can't deal with sin except as his holiness allows it if he did not punish it, if he did not make adequate satisfaction for it, then it would be as if he was allowing it. And he was forgiving it unjustly, which he couldn't do. To simply forgive out of mercy or to redeem with the wave of a hand would cause God to cease to be God. His holiness demanded what sin demands. Just punishment. The death penalty. But remember, God is holy, but he is also love. And it was his love that had him take our place on that cross. This is how it's talked about in the Bible. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for. We can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. That is grace. Yes. It's the simplest definition of grace is that that is which is freely given and totally undeserved. It's getting what you don't deserve and not getting what you do. That is what we have in the love and the forgiveness offered to us by God through what Jesus did on that cross. The Bible also says this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works. Which brings us to the message of Jude. You've probably been wondering, when is he ever actually going to talk about that one-hit wonder? Well, we'll get there. there. There were some people scattered throughout the various churches who were teaching that being saved by grace gave them the license to sin, since their sins would no longer be held against them they even said that they had been given dreams that that this that to try to bolster their teaching here's essentially what they were saying if, if my sin means that i need forgiveness and i find that forgiveness through the grace that god that flows from jesus then isn't my relationship with sin now changed meaning that it's no longer a big deal doesn't my sin just keep getting met with God's grace and forgiveness? So it's no big deal whether I sin or not. I mean, if I ask for forgiveness, I'm forgiven. So why not just keep sinning? I mean, I sin, I get forgiveness. I sin, I get forgiveness. So once in Christ, sin is no longer an issue. What they were trying to say. So I can relax about it. In fact, if you think about it this way, the more I sin, the more grace I get. And that's a good thing, right? We all need grace. 
You can see how they're twisting the message of grace. It's kind of like saying, well, now that I'm married, I have that legal document that says that I'm married, so I can just go out and sleep with whoever I want. As long as I'm willing to come home at the end of the day to my wife and say, ask her to forgive me and say, I I'm still willing to stay in this marriage, and I can just do whatever I write, want to do, right? Anyone who thinks that way won't be married for very long. See, what these people were saying was that sin and grace wasn't either real grace, it wasn't a real message, and they're distorting grace. So Jude wrote to the churches all about this issue, and he was not too pleased with what was going on. So let's read through the entirety of Jude, and then we'll break it down a little bit. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I'm writing to all who have been called by God the Father who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Dear friends, I have been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And to remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget about Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality of every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. In the same way, these people who claim authority from their dreams live immoral lives. Defy authority and scoff at supernatural beings. But even Michael, one of the mightiest of the angels, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. This took place when Michael was arguing with the devil about Moses' body. But the people scoff at things they do not understand, like unthinking animals. They do whatever their instincts tell them, and so they bring about their own destruction. What sorrow awaits them, for they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money. And like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. 
They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by their roots. They are like wild waves of the sea churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They are like wandering stars doomed forever to blackest darkness. Enoch, who lived in the seventh generation after Adam, prophesied about these people. He said, listen. The Lord is coming with countless thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on the people of the world. He will convict every person of all the ungodly things they have done and for all the insults that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers. They're complainers, living only to satisfy their desires. They bring about they brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. But you, my dear friends, must remember that the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted that they told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's Spirit in them. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in, the, in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others. But do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God. Our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, all glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. There you have it. Many things that kind of jump out to you as you read that. I know it did to me, like what in the world was he referring to there or there or even there? There's a couple of those. But we'll get to those in a minute. But first, the big picture about what we just read. The grace of God, it's not a game. It's not to be mocked. It's not to be cheapened. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card that lets you blow off any sense of living for God. For those of us who have come to God through Jesus and prayed and have received grace, we've entered into a new life. We've embraced a new life, and it's been one that has been purchased at a great cost. To refuse to try to live that new life, to refuse to give ourselves to that new life and, and to its new commitments would be to degrade and dishonor everything the relationship is about and everything that that relationship stands for and everything that Christ did for us 
in order that we may have it. See, this isn't simply a mandate to live a sin-free life, but a mandate not to lead a sin-dominated life, one where you give yourself over to it. See, there's a name for that, and it's called cheap grace, which is not grace at all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor during the time of the Nazi resistance, wrote, about, wrote against Hitler. He eventually was captured and then was executed in a Nazi concentration camp, but he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, considered one of the greatest Christian talks about the idea of cheap grace. Here are some of his words. Through such grace, cheap grace, the world finds a cheap covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Grace without discipleship, grace without the cross. But real grace is costly. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. Above all, it's costly because it cost God the life of his very son. Cheap grace is Christianity without discipleship. And Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ which is no Christianity at all. See, that's what Jude wants to remind them of. Cheap grace is no grace. And if your life has not been touched by the grace and the forgiveness of God, then you are still under judgment. Your sin is still weighing on you. The death penalty remains. And Jude gives three examples of this. Judgment that came on the people of Israel who did not believe. Judgment that came on the people living in Sodom and Gomorrah for their sexual immorality. And the judgment that came on some of the fallen angels or the demons who turned against God. Speaking of those angels, there were good angels and there, were, there are bad angels. Now, not all angels that God created have stayed loyal to him. Some rebelled, some lost their place in heaven and their holy condition, and now they oppose the work and the will of God. This is what Jude was referring to when he wrote this. I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. And that's what a demon is. A demon is simply a fallen angel who has chosen to rebel. That's also who Satan is, a, a fallen angel who chose to enter into rebellion against God, probably an archangel among the most powerful of all of the angels. And according to the book of Revelation, it seems as if Satan led at least one-third of the angels in rebellion against God. The heart of Satan's fall was pride. He wanted to sit on God's throne. He wanted that authority, that power that wasn't his. God has, has allowed Satan to exercise his free will and to be in rebellion until the last day of judgment, just as he allowed us to exercise our free will and to make 
our own choices. Jude was so taken with how flippant some were being about grace and lifestyle in the face of the realities and the stakes of the spiritual realm that he gives the example of the archangel Michael who, when arguing over the body of Moses, didn't dare to take it upon himself to personally engage Satan, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. But even when provoked, Michael does not presume to try to condemn Satan. He simply leaves the matter to God. That's Jude's point. If an angel is so careful in what he said, how much more should we, more mere mortals, watch our own words in relation to the assumptions about God's judgment in light of sin and grace? The rest of the letter was more of the same reminder after reminder about how the God of grace is also the God of truth. And that grace is not cheap. That outside of an authentic relationship with God, which involves Jesus as not only our forgiver, but as also our leader, there can only be judgment. He mentions the Old Testament examples of, of Cain and, and Balaam and Korah. With Cain, he's referring to the famed story of Cain and Abel, who, when, how Cain killed his brother Abel out of selfishness and greed and hatred, the first murder in human history. And Balaam was also a man motivated by greed. Korah was a man who rose up against God's appointed leadership, and they all ended up receiving judgment they were the con there were the consequences of their behavior but then jude ends on a positive note and he says but you dear friends must build each other up in your most holy faith pray in the power of the holy spirit and await the mercy of our lord jesus christ who will bring you eternal life in this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. See, Jude tells us, that to help each other, he tells us we have to help each other in order to get grace right. And to do all of that, they can, they can do to show grace towards others, but not at the expense of truth. And here's how Jude tells them how. Build each other up in the faith. Keep encouraging each other. Keep praying. And whatever you do, do not lose hope that in the end, all will be made right. Amen. Heavenly Father, there's no need to wait our past, no matter how bad it may be, no matter how dark it may be, our past will be washed with rivers of your grace. And we pray, come, come.